1: Welcome back to the Center for Internet Security's podcast series, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Uh, I'm joined today by my co-host Sean Atkinson, the CISO for the Center for Internet Security. Welcome, Sean.
2: Thank you, Tony. Great to be here.
1: Yeah, the special guest with us today, Roger Grimes of No Before. Welcome aboard, Roger.
2: Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, such a pleasure. So we're, um, you know, as always, we're we're taking a look at some of the uh, interesting topics and interesting people in the industry and try to try to simplify and bring down to earth some of the key things that we're all struggling with in this cybersecurity industry. So today's focus, and we have a real expert on the on the line here today, is uh, Roger talking about the role of data in cybersecurity and how we use it to make decisions or fail to use it to make decisions. But with that, Roger, uh, w- welcome to the show again. And how about giving the audience a little bit about your interesting career, where you've been and sort of what brought you to this place?
0: Okay, I've been doing it. I've earned all these gray hairs. I've been doing it 35, 36 years I've written 14 books, probably 1,400, 1,500 magazine articles on cybersecurity. Uh, And I've done every role from, you know, I started out like a PC repair person. Uh, I was disassembling DOS computer viruses for John McAfee back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, But I've been everything. You know, I was a network technician, network manager, uh, eventually made VP of IT. So I've done many, many roles. But for the last couple of decades, I've been doing cybersecurity Full-time is my only job. Even actually when I was like the VP of IT and supposed to be doing budgets and things like that, I was always really not doing that work and always doing computer security. I don't know how I didn't get fired uh, because that was certainly my natural interest. So it was good that I finally realized it and and just quit and became a full-time computer security guy.
1: Yeah, that that is definitely a, a grassroots uh, from, from the bottom up and the multiple views along the way, Roger. And I remember uh, seeing your byline on some of those early PC uh, articles and so forth. And, you know, so Wild West days of uh, viruses and all that. And wow, you know, <laughs> how far we've all come. Now, 35, 36 years. You're still a youngster in my book, but I appreciate the tremendous experience that you have here. So, let, so the topic today, uh, and that was... Uh, struck one of the things I did, and yes, I bought a copy of your excellent book, let's see, A Data-Driven Computer Security Defense. And uh, it was at the time that I was thinking about that for the kind of work that we do here at CIS. And what really struck me about it um, was the, uh, I'll describe it as a really pragmatic approach that you take. In fact, of all the data wonks I deal with, I think you're, you're, uh, you're at the pinnacle of, of pragmatic. That is, I think in this industry, we've spent a lot of time uh, worrying about the data that we don't have and not making enough use of the data that we do have. So it's been kind of a white whale thing. You know, we're we're chasing this. If we would all just throw our incidents into a giant database or, you know, kind of make all this available, we'd get really wise and then we would know what to do. And you took a really different approach. So so what brought you into the thinking about data and its role in, in uh, designing and prioritizing cyber defense?
0: Yeah, and let me say that book you bought, which I, I, I probably first wrote five years ago or so, and it's based upon a white paper I wrote years before when I was at Microsoft. But it's called A Data-Driven Computer Defense, and I really consider it, out of my 14, the only book I really care about. The the others I just did for the money, (laughs) Uh, but but data-driven defense uh, I do care about. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really this realization that our industry, which deals with lots of data, doesn't use its own data very well, efficiently to defend itself. And you know, it was like one of the biggest things I remember is that I was working for Microsoft and I was putting in all these advanced computer security systems. Uh, I was doing smart cards, you know, the beginning of MFA, uh, doing all these advanced things. And all my customers were still being infiltrated by social engineering and unpatched software, and I mean, all of them. And and I started to think, wow. And it's like every customer, and customers kind of knew it. But they didn't. And it's because like we just it's interesting. We're very immature on using data. You know, like you go to a lot of other industries and the entire industry is very data driven. But in IT, the people that are actually storing, processing, analyzing, (laughs) creating that data, Mm -hmm. we don't use it very efficiently ourselves. And many times... It would be data that, we, that most of us have or could have if we literally just looked and used it. Like a, a, kind of a good example I have in the book is a lot of people may have a metric, which is, you know, how many malware programs did we detect this month? And that would be a metric that show them going, you know, we, we detected more malware programs or less malware programs. And I was like, it really, if you're detecting and removing malware before it goes off, it really is no risk to you. The real risk is how long did the malware, malware dwell? How long did it was it on your environment before it was detected and removed? And nobody was getting that information at all, even though you could easily get it. Uh, you could turn on like and you know I was working at Microsoft at the time. It's like oh you could turn on AppLocker, an application control program, yeah. and audit only mode, and that will tell you when a particular executable first executes, and you could compare that against the antivirus removal logs. To get your dwell time, because really the risk to you is how long was it on your systems, and did it go undetected? Was it one second or three days or three weeks? And so that really, you know, is the sort of thing I was looking at. Is we need to get you know better use the data that we have. Uh, even trying to like, if you have to apply a control, a bunch of controls, like if you're doing PCI DSS or you're doing. Um, you know, the, NS, the, the, the NIST uh, cybersecurity control framework, there's literally hundreds of controls you could do. But if you use the data, you could see that some of those controls like fighting social engineering, having, having better patching, having good logon credentials that are unique. Some of those controls, according to the data that we have, shows that they're super, super important. Like those three controls I just mentioned, fighting social engineering, better patching your software, and having stronger credentials, really accounts for 90 to 99% of the attacks on most environments and being able to have that sort of data. And then, you know, even as it changed over time, like if it became something else, maybe one day it's cloud-based computer viruses that are causing a problem. But being able to have a framework of data that that gives us that data would allow us to be better defenders.
1: No, that really resonates, Roger. We didn't know each other back in those early days that you were thinking about that. But, you know, the same observation I had at the DOD, right? we start... It, it, it turned out there, were, there was lots of panic and up and down over when they first started to instrument the DOD just to collect data. Like, was it good that we were seeing all this or not? It was really it was unclear because we had no idea what was happening before then. And so you know, it was really hard. And, and there was a tendency to, to count the countable stuff. Like you said, right? We blocked these. Well, uh, okay but what is the meaning there you know and if what's the purpose is risk and so you gave the great example of the dwell time is what re- you really cared about because that represented the window of opportunity so Sh- sean is a cso who deals with this stuff day to day how does that resonate does that make sense to
2: you? oh it certainly does um you know in some cases where um you know we have this plethora of data uh and as you mentioned you know there are situations where we're you know, custodial elements of that that we perform, but never taking the action in terms of integrating it into decision-making. Roger, one of the areas that, um, you know, I wanted to at least discuss with you was the identification of these key performance indicators of security controls, as you've actually laid out for us, as also a measurement of the contextual element of risk, uh, and then, really, what is our underlying exposure in order to tell a story? I kind of feel, and again, I'm going to defer to you, but I kind of feel data is there to show how good we are, and it's not used respectfully in a way that can help improve. I always feel it, it's used in a way that's not really consumable to tell the story. It's just here's a point of the story, I finish there. I walk away as a CISO, I walk away from the board of directors table, whatever it happens to be, but behind it, the context is lost, which needs to be shared in order to understand and appreciate um, security control implementation, risk management, and things like that. Uh, again, wanted to defer to you and get your thoughts in that space.
0: No, you know, I think it's it, it's very true. And let me say that, you know, I think the overall metric, you know, if I was to be a CISO and I'm reporting to the board or whoever, it would be, hey, are we more or less likely to be successfully attacked over time, right? If we're doing the right things in cybersecurity risk, we're making it less likely that we're going to be compromised. You can't say that we're never going to be compromised, right? There's there's always outliers and stuff. But are we addressing the right KPIs uh, to, to ensure that we're decreasing risk? And also, even like I remember, and this is years ago, again, I'm going back to Microsoft and even a little bit before. Uh, I was going to a lot of companies at the time that were compromised, and they were compromised because they had unpatched Java. For a long time, unpatched Sun Java and then Oracle bought them. Oracle Java, for about a 10-year period, was the most likely reason you were to be compromised. And, and, and lots of people knew it. And lots of people were writing about Cisco did a report one year that said something like 90% of all successful breaches were tied to one program, unpatched Java. And certainly every company I went to, that was the case. They had unpatched Java all over the place. And uh, when I, I would tell them, you need to patch this, you've been, and sometimes they'd be compromised. Two and three times to different cybersecurity events. There'd be people fired and new staffs brought on and a hundred million dollars in budget, or it'd be fines of millions of dollars for information they lost. And when I would come back the second and third time, they still didn't patch Java. <laughs> like I, I just didn't get it. And I was like, why aren't you doing it? They're like, and I remember they would say things like, Well, we can't do it to break stuff. If we patch it, it breaks things, which is a real concern. But it's like, I think if you went to the CEO and the board of directors and told them that you have one thing that is 90 percent of your cybersecurity risk and you're not doing anything to mitigate it, because even if you can't patch it, there's other mitigations you can do to try to offset the risk, such as blocking unsigned Java applets coming from the Internet or something like that. I mean, there's things you can do, but all these companies weren't doing anything. And it was because for a bunch of reasons, but including they, you know, they weren't really capturing the right KPIs to make that something like they they would there was never a KPI that said are we patching Java one hundred percent or not it was patch management they'd say how's patch management doing and everybody was ninety nine percent you know every customer I went to handled it ninety nine percent what was the one percent Java, Java. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like you know there's a correlation causation correlation there about why the attackers are attacking this thing because no one's patching it so that's what I you know I started to see that we weren't capturing the right risk metrics. Uh, And it it was amazing. I was even surprised that even when people uh, captured the right uh, metrics, maybe they knew that they had to patch Java, they would be hit by so many other things that they were required to do for compliance that it would just get lost in the shuffle, right? It'd be just one of the many checklist things they had to do. So that's where I kind of, I think my my data-driven defense was originally called risk relevance. I was very big about trying to use the data you had or creating new data if you had to, to figure out the relevant risk of different attack methods in your environment. And I was also very big about, don't don't read the Microsoft report or the semantic report. Use your own data. Try to capture your own data. Like in any given company, you'll have malware programs come in there and detected and removed. But nobody was asking, how did they get in there? Like every single time, you, even if it's adware, That's just on your system. Every time you've got some type of malware program, there's a reason, a root cause of how it got in there. Was it social engineering and the user restricting to do it? Was it unpatched software? Was it a credential issue? Did it come in from a supply chain thing? I mean, nobody was capturing that information and it really wasn't that hard to capture it. Because you could literally list the top 10 malware programs that your antivirus program detected and removed read about them, and go, oh, that only comes in through social engineering. This one only comes in through um, mal- you know, malicious Word documents. This one only comes in through unpatched web servers or whatever. Literally with 30 minutes of investigation, you could kind of figure out the the relative risk of the different methods being used to compromise your environment. And then you have something to concentrate on, right? And also the other thing, and I, I apologize, you get, you get me talking, guys, is that I realized that like a lot of people are concentrating on past the hash attacks at the time you know where people would break in be able to uh, download your password hashes and crack them and today it's ransomware people are worried about ransomware and i'm like those are really outcomes of your real problem your real problem is how the attackers got in to do past the hash attacks or how the attackers got in to do ransomware because i say this as a test if i could say like for today take ransomware and just May you know, wave a magic wand and there's no more ransomware. Well, if you haven't closed the initial root access methods that allowed the ransomware to get in there, they're still going to do something bad to you. You know, they're going to do password-stealing Trojans. They're going to do wiperware. And so a couple of those ideas coalesced and why I wrote the white paper and then wrote the book is concentrate on root causes, try to use your own data to figure out the different relevant risk of the different attack types, and then use that in your defense.
1: Yeah, those are, uh, that's like a trip down memory lane, Roger. Some great, great stuff. But, I, you know, you, you hit a theme that's, that's one of our bedrock principles here at, at uh, CIS. This, you know, this uh, overwhelm. Uh, Shaw owes me a buck if he says the term fog of more. But it's, you know, we're, defenders are often, the, 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 the line that I use is never in our history as defenders have we had so many tools, technology, insights about attackers to work with. But it's not helping us get better. It's actually overwhelming the defense. And so you've got this soup of, you know, sort of too many choices, too many well-intended government agencies and the court system and the insurers and the lawyers. And it's, you, you know, you need some way to get through that, right? You How will I prioritize in a noisy environment? Well, I've got to look at things like what's the likelihood? You know, those are the kinds of things that really help you think about that. And you, you're right. I think we, another part of that is this sort of, I described it as, you know, perfection has been the enemy of the good in cybersecurity for as long as we remember, right? So you you know, there's a tendency to say, oh, you have some good ideas there, Roger, but that doesn't stop everything. Well, but but I'm gonna deal with 80, 90 percent. I think I'll take my chances. Yeah. You know? But it's sort of again, folks like me grew up in a world where our job is to keep pointing out problems no matter how much you've already spent. And so again, it doesn't really help. It's it's more paralysis. But but I think that, you know, this sort of you know nothing you've described in terms of data collection, right? Is out of reach for an enterprise that has IT staff. You know, a, a, not something bigger than tiny, but you know that has sort of a traditional IT look at this. That is that that's collectable data. Uh, and you gave a couple of great examples of reframing it for the purpose of giving it to an executive, right through Sean or somebody like that. And I think that that is a, a a fair conclusion that we really have not used what we have there. If if we tried to extend that idea, Roger, to public policy at writ large, you know, sort of doing this at scale, because uh, that's what really started me down this path. I started to look look around at things uh, again in parallel to you, things like public health and you know, transportation safety, and go, Wait, how do they deal with risk? They don't, you know, they don't throw up their hands and give up, right? They they attempt to look at the data and history. And, you know, we, as a society, we develop uh, building codes and licensing and, you know, that kind of thing to help manage most of the risk, but there's a clear um, implication. There is science and data behind these things, right? People have tested the strength of materials. So are, are we still a long way from that kind of thinking in cyber or is that, is that within reach?
0: Yeah. I mean, that, actually you bring up a great point. Let me say that, the problem is without having a data-driven uh, defense. That uh, the allegory I use: is suppose you have a bunch of you have a house and attackers are breaking in it all the time, and they're coming through the windows. Well, there's a lot of different ways that attackers could break into your house through the door, through the windows, through the garage, through the roof, through the ceiling, through the you know the walls, all this stuff. But you have noticed that over time, that every time they break in, they're coming through the windows. So in response to that, you decide that you need, because you've also heard they can come through the doors, you decide that you're going to put more locks on your door. Not only this, but when your community gets together to, because there's a crime wave of people breaking in through people's houses through the windows, the people in charge, uh, the cops and the people trying to warn you, you go, hey, you need, you need to make sure you get better doors. Uh, you know, that's a, you know, we've got lots of reports of people coming through the windows. And so we're going to recommend that you get better doors. And that, that's what a lot of like our control documents are like, is that they just they everybody has a sense of what the major issues are, but they want to make sure you're handling the 199 different issues. But on a on a, a global policy level, I certainly think that uh, it, it would be great if we were able to share, I think, either at a government level or even possibly you know, internationally uh collected statistics you know like so when someone gets something from microsoft or semantic or something like that sometimes they they have a feeling that it's a vendor narrative because it's trying to sell them software or something like that so it would be great if we had public policies to push out better data collection and dissemination and let me say one of my inventions in my head that i love um, is the idea that we would have a dns-like infrastructure where somebody could just say, I just got this packet, somebody's server client or email client or whatever would say, I just got this packet from this IP address or domain. Is it a known bad place? And their computer would send out one packet and get one packet response from like a DNS infrastructure because all the vendors have these huge list of uh, sites that have bad reputations because they're, you know, either nation state attack stuff or sending out spam or whatever. I would love something like that at like a national level where it's just collected and it's available to anyone, however they want to utilize it. Again, I, I kind of see it as this, you know, Internet uh, internet DNS system, but for security, going is that domain safe? You know, is that known to be a safe domain? Yes or no, and it gets back one packet. And let me say we have something similar from the from CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, already on patching, which I love the known exploited. Vulnerability catalog list. That is one of the you're talking about having a plethora of tools or richness of tools. There was over 29,000 patches uh, issued last year. Over 29,000 different vulnerabilities and patches that were released to close them. Uh, only 2.7% of them were ever used by real world attacker to attack any real world target. The rest of them are just informational or research. Well, Cisco goes, here's the 2.7 that you really, really need to patch. And any of us can subscribe to that CISA known exploited vulnerability catalog list and get a list in our mailbox every day or every week going, hey, if you have software or firmware that's on this list, get it patched ASAP. Well, I just want to, it would be great if we had a few more resources just like that to even go beyond software vulnerabilities and firmware vulnerabilities.
1: Yeah, things like that. Um, I mean, there are pieces of that around. Number one, kudos to the system, because I I did think that that was a, a, a neat thing when they made that as a matter of operational routine, right? They're just going to keep keep pumping that out. But two, it was like astounding, like how long it took to get to that point, uh, you know, to, to uh, you know, you can't pay attention equally to tens of thousands of vulnerabilities, right? And so how will I sort out the good from the bad? Well, you know, uh, wh- what happens with a lot of it, a lot of our business kind of grew up in wizardry, right? Wizards can tell you how every one of those 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 can be exploited. The problem is you can't do anything with that. It's it's overwhelming. So even just focusing on the things that really have, you know, there's a demonstrable exploit. I think it's an important step and it helps take a lot of the noise away. It, it is not, um, you know, it's not the solution to world hunger or peace in our time, but it's certainly a major and easily uh, operationalized step, that makes a lot of sense, I think, to pull that in there. So, that, so your your plea is, and I, I think we'd agree with, with you on that, more of these things are, you know, rather than the conversation about, let's share more vulnerabilities, it's, you know, let, let's let move this to operational. Let's all share the ones we know have been exploited, right, in some way. Now, whether it applies to you, there's still so, a bit of analysis to figure it out, but it certainly makes sense to, to bring attention to things like that. So, So this idea then, you know, and and related to this idea of public policy, one of the things when I talk to public policymakers, they often get overwhelmed by the technology. Right, they they see wizardry people like you or Sean or whatever. They just like, oh my gosh, you know, these guys must know what they're doing. Uh, our secret is safe here with this group. But uh, <laughs> what what I tell them is, you should ask the same questions you would ask of any other risky part of our world whether it's public health, right? We wouldn't have public health policies without knowing there was some science, there was some data, there were studies that have been translated into action. how do I translate that? That's the key step, not the sharing of the raw studies. It's, how could I translate that into action? And yet a lot of, I think, um, policy makers in particular, who are not technologists, I mean, that's not their job, but they get a little overwhelmed by it all. And so you get these, you know, multiple competing parallel compliance frameworks. They're all mean well. They all have some merit, but in total, they just overwhelm. So, so Sean, now back to the the role that you play, really try to sort through this as an enterprise, right? So you're in an unusual situation because our board, you know, I think it's fair to say is more, more cyber concerned than the average, because that's, that's our business. It's in our name. And so the the risks of reputational risk of failure are pretty high. So what is their demand of you in terms of, prioritization and the the backing of data behind what the program that you put together.
2: Absolutely. Well, it goes back to something uh, Roger had mentioned, and that's the root cause analysis piece. It's the, one of the things is the transparency between the compliance requirement and actual security. So, show and demonstrate actual security, and, and Roger, I, I, I've said this, and uh, I'm trying to get it to the level of fog of more, but it's not quite there yet, is that the um, byproduct of good security is compliance. Uh, you know, it, It's part of it, and you can align to it if you do good security. But um, so really, and as you mentioned, Tony, very uh, cyber-savvy um, board, so breaking down that to the risk, to the root cause analysis, what are we doing in these places? And, and really it takes some of the guesswork in terms of what do they want to know and me providing necessarily the information to them is there is a demand in terms of the structure, in terms of what they want to see. And that allows me a, a, a really a more delicate path towards understanding what is key performance, providing them information From a risk-based perspective, the contextual element that Roger had mentioned, and also in the book, which is phenomenal, by the way, allows us then to understand the approach we're taking and the decision-making I'm putting in play, because now I can back it up with these respective capabilities and these approaches. It's not just... I think this is a good idea. You know, I think patching makes sense. Um, Okay, well, we had that 30 years ago. Anything else, Sean? You know, it (laughs) allows us then for me to create a narrative with the organization and with the board to understand and then provide ultimately confidence. But it gets to a point that uh, I wanted to reflect back to Roger, if I could, on this data-driven approach to threat modeling. Absolutely phenomenal. It allows us to contextualize. I'm not focused on, let's say, the entire MITRE attack framework. I can then start to focus and look at the probabilities and the impacts, and really then start to address a more succinct approach by utilising the data to uh, responding kind to representative uh, adversarial threat. It allows me another step in that right direction of trying to boil the ocean. I can get it down to where there are specifics. And yeah, you know, I can get to the 90% and like that there is no complete insecurity, but it allows me a, uh, a greater success factor. And I just want to get your thoughts on that, Roger.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, and that's all about that. I, I think one of the best things I try to communicate to any board is there's a lot of threads and here are the ones you really need to be worried about. Like, you know, a great example, and I, I hear this all the time. Somebody was saying, be careful about your credit cards being stolen wirelessly. You know, somebody uh, coming up and doing a, a, some sort of wireless uh, near NFC, near field Scanning of your credit card from your wallet, or while you're using it, and that sort of stuff. Let me say that is something that really can be done to wireless-enabled chip, RFIC, radio frequency identity cards, RFID uh, credit card-enabled credit cards, and stuff. But I've never seen a real-world crime report of a real-world crime. Ever, where a real-world criminal actually wirelessly got the card? I've never read a crime report where the police got the equipment that the criminal would need to have to do it. I've never heard of a criminal and his pleading say that they had done it. And yet, there's like a billion-dollar industry of people buying these RFID credit card sleeve things. And let me say, my company, I know before my employee who I love, we we hand them out at conferences, <laughs> I, and I'll give this. Speech I, knew, I have one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'll say, listen, they're worthless. That, you know, the, 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 they do what they're claimed to do, but there's not never been, as far as I know, a real world, and I've been saying this for over a decade. So if there was the RFID credit card shielding sleeve people, I'm sure it would print this to embarrassment. I said, I've never known of a, <laughs> a, a crime that these sleeves would have prevented yet in the real world. And yet, when I go at the booth after, after that talk and I have a bunch of them, I have probably 50 people ask for them. <laughs> you know, they just heard the speech. They've just heard how great they are. <laughs> Or how worthless they are. And they tell me how great the speech was. And they're like, can I have one of those? And I'm like, sure, here you go. And I'm, I'm befuddled. But I think it's just something about humans and that we have so much to worry about. And we've been told certain things over and over again that we have to respond. And, 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 there are some things that we need to respond to at, at a national level and global level, and to go back kind of, kind of to Tony, where you talk about like what we could do nationally. Another initiative that I like that CIS is doing is Secure by Design, where they're trying to get people to more securely design software and secure software defaults. It really is great stuff. But you know, here's the wild part: is you know, there's this whole programming idea of secure development lifecycle or security development lifecycle (SDL) it is almost not taught in any college or programming school at all. No one, I mean, very few colleges anywhere in the world teach it. I mean, if it's taught in America, it's probably taught in two or three colleges. So then we wonder why we had 29,000 vulnerabilities last year, Uh, you know, because our programmers are not being taught how to prevent buffer overflows and things like that. Literally, they're in, I I tried to start an initiative six months or a year ago to try to get colleges to start teaching SDL by default. Uh, And again, SIS is pushing it from their end. They're doing what they need to be doing at a government level. But I was surprised that everybody I spoke to in every college and university and programming platform said we don't have the room for it. We already don't have enough room. What do you think I should push out of it? You know, I'm like, well, maybe don't teach that COBOL class anymore. I mean, there's things you can push out of the curriculum. We're talking about one of the most, you know, one of the most centralized needs, which is to give basic education to programmers of how to more securely code. And let me say, it also starts at the uh, corporate level. If we had corporations that started to go, hey, I, we're asking for PGP programmers or Rust developers or whatever, and you must be trained in SDL. That would feedback to the colleges. I mean, it seems like the entire ecosystem is broken. We have twenty nine thousand vulnerabilities, up from four and five thousand just five or ten years ago. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And we're wondering why is it so bad? Why are we continuing to put buffer overflows in the code? And the, and you're like, well, part of it is we don't actually teach them not to do it.
1: <laughs> that doesn't quite predate both of us, Roger, but it's pretty close. You know, the ability to, yeah, and that you know that's the history of technology adoption, right? At least in in IT, that. You know, we, we headlong rush into new features and new capabilities uh, well before we're able to manage the risks. And I think you're right. It's not a and it's not fix one thing. It's fix a lot of things to get there. The economic incentives, right? Curriculum and all that. You know, I've been been in some of those discussions with lots of academics also. And
0: But, you know, uh, but I think in other like you said before, a lot of other industries like building codes, let's say flying. You know, while people are learning to fly, the FAA figured out a lot of these crashes are happening because people are stalling. And they literally made it a a part of of getting a license as as a pilot to learn how to avoid stalls, how to get out of a stall, and you have to practice it a couple of times to get your pilot's license. And then they get educated about it, and the plane manufacturer started putting stall warning lights in it. I mean, there's this whole ecosystem that responded to this threat. But in our field, we learn about something, and it just doesn't seem to kind of take over the ecosystem like it does in home building and flying and some of the other.
1: No, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I've been looking at this since, you know, whenever. And, uh, do you remember the, the, the uh, Famous uh, blog article by Marianne Davidson at Oracle. Yes, <laughs> she, she, she she sent a letter. I don't know if you remember this show. And it was quite a few years ago. She said, looked at what were the top ten schools they hired, you know, computer engineers or whatever from, and sent them a later letter basically saying, "You guys are doing a terrible job. We, they know nothing about security. We have to start from scratch when we hire them. You guys need to do better." And that was highly controversial, right? That was a flame war, you know, going back and forth there. But her point was exactly on the money you know people don't we don't want them to learn coding for its own sake right they're going to build systems they're building components of systems which almost inevitably have some sort of safety need or resilience need or some you know uh, implement financial uh, you know oversight or best practices and so you know the the attributes that you bring to that are really important but we've kind of let that let go as Sort of occupational teaching, right? Something they do once they get to the job, not something.
0: It's like we you have a bunch of engineering schools that never taught engineers how to do load testing, you know? Yeah, it, well, that's what you know,
1: Roger. I, let me ask you about this in, in the in the realm of data. I, that if you know, remember Marcus Socks? You remember Mark from way back? Um, Mark Mark's a, a, like a real engineer. You know, we call a real engineer, you know, a certified, <laughs> you know, licensed by the state engineer. And my favorite in the early days of this, uh, sort of new person to cyber. Was the real engineer, right? The licensed engineer who could spell IT. So he became the computer guy. And then, there, and they would come walk up to me after conferences, and they would say, "You know, this is the situation. I, I'm now the IT guy. I can't find like the handbook. I can't find the the building codes. Where are they? <laughs> and what you're telling me is they don't exist." I said, "Exactly, they don't exist. You know, they're sort of tuned to look for that, right? What are the constraints? What are the tables that show me the strength of materials, the loads?" And of course, we have, you know, And there are a lot of reasons we haven't created that. But frankly, it's long past time to think more about these issues because our whole society, our economy, right, our privacy is all is all built upon this. And so all this is, a, you know, we've we've gone from helping one enterprise with a little bit of data to to the national problem. But I think that's a fair one, Roger. Let me let me just, in the interest of time here, though, are there any areas or enterprises or sectors that you think do a better job of this? That think more about the data and how it can be used to drive priorities, or is is it sort of? Uniform? No, I
0: mean I I, I think um, the government in a lot of places, um, you know, does think about it in a you know serious way. I, I you know, it's funny. I I, I think I, I wrote this in the book, but you know, I used to consult for hundreds of companies, and I would say, hey, this is what you need to go fix. I would do the security review, have a list. I'd put the things they needed to do first. Early on was patched Java. You know, a lot of times it would be, you know, these days would be, hey, you need to do better on social engineering. You need to be doing better on patching, whatever it might be. But out of all those companies over 20 years, only one actually did what I told them to do in the report. The rest basically said yes, agreed, and then ignored the report and just kept doing business as usual. Uh, And and the one entity that actually did it was actually a, a U.S. government organization nobody would ever think of. Uh, so I won't even mention them. They're not in the military. They're not in the government. They're just a normal U.S. government agency. I gave them the report and they did it. And when I came back the next year, they fixed everything. And I remember just I, I couldn't. I was like, what? Because I just wasn't used to <laughs> anybody ever doing anything. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, let's say the U.S. government is certainly leading by they cared about data classification. They care about training. You know, they have the STIGs. They have Uh, You know, a lot of people will dog the U.S. government for things. You know, I think they do the best of any industry. I mean, given what they have, you know, and certainly there's errors and weaknesses and holes and everything. But if I was to pick the only industry, I think that takes it seriously a little bit more, the government. And and, and, and let me say, everybody else is universally horrible.
1: (laughs) You know, and so as a former federal employee, I thank you, Roger. I I would say. It is it is true that uh, federal agencies in particular that, that, that I'm most familiar with, they do think of this as an enterprise problem, right? How am I going to manage this at the top level? That doesn't always make it easy because there is like, if you look at the Defense Department, right? There is no single entity that is the Defense Department. It's a sort of collaborative of, a, you know, or confederacy of a, of enterprises, each of which is driven by different things. And i said, you know, heaven help us. In uh, peacetime, they're warring with each other over budgets. But good news is when the country's in crisis, they come together magnificently. But, it, but at least there's thinking of, you know, I have to manage this at an enterprise level. I need reporting at the top level. Digital
0: identities. I mean, I think the key to, to long-term security is having more assured identities. And, you know, the U.S. government did that with CAT cards and other things and assurance and different levels of assurance you know better than any other entity I know. Not perfectly, and there's lots of problems, but they are trying to address it at a grand scale better than a lot of other groups.
1: All right, let me ask you the uh, be, because we're all like card-carrying cyber guys, Roger. I have to ask you about uh, generative AI and its impact upon upon cyber stuff. I, I think it's in the contract somewhere, but I forget. But any <laughs> any, any thoughts? Because I know you can't resist looking at new things. And what they mean for our business. So any any and we're not looking for the wisdom of the ages here, but sort of your first thoughts or, or what you've been playing
0: with. So for sure, AI and the generative large language models are making hacking easier for different people to perform. We're already seeing anecdotal stories coming out of, you know, I think a couple of days ago I saw some guy had a deep fake voice and he and he accidentally gave up twenty-five million dollars. But like social engineering is already involved in the 70 to 90% of the data breaches. And that was without AI. So I, I, one of my first questions, I don't know how bad AI is going to make it worse, right? It's already a hundred miles tall. Is it going to make the problem a mile taller, you know, or two miles taller? I don't know. It's already pretty huge with, and that's just with the bad stuff with the typos and you know, everything, but for sure AI is going to cause cyber crime to get worse for sure. We just don't, I don't, I don't think anybody can predict how much worse it's going to make it. And, and also one of the big things I try to remind people is the good guys invented it. You know, they invented it decades ago. And at uh, my own employer Noble before we've been using AI to help better produce educational content and better products that detect phishing scams for like seven years, you know, ahead of the, so I, 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 I it's not a zero. It's only, it's not like just the bad guys get to use it. The good guys have been using it longer and I think we're going to use it in a better way uh, and, and hopefully we will be more thoughtful. And so, you know, these two competing forces, the good guys and the bad guys, you know, fighting it out. That's certainly a, a, a part of the future of AI. Is your bot smarter? Is your good guy bot smarter than my bad guy bot, <laughs> you know, and the better uh, algorithms win? You know, maybe in the future, I say, you know, mothers, uh, they'd say in the last decade, you wanted your kid to be a financial algo. You wanted to be a mathematical wizard that would be picked up by like a Morgan Stanley because he knew how to do financial algorithms. Uh, you know, I think maybe this decade might be the decade of the cybersecurity algo. And mamas, uh, you know, tell your daughters and sons to learn how to do cybersecurity and maybe help out in that realm because that's the future of cybersecurity for sure.
1: No, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, one of my friends in the business once uh, said not that long ago, uh, the problem with cybersecurity is our people are fighting their robots. So maybe we should be having our robots fight their robots. But we're, you know, we're, as obviously we're like everybody else in the industry, looking at applications for some of the things that we do and the the future of our guidance and things like uh, how we cross map between frameworks and so forth. So we're excited by a lot of positive potential too. As you said, one of the problems is overwhelming, you know, messy challenge for defenders, right? Just drowning in information and hard to, uh, establish relevance or priority and so we think there's great great opportunity there yeah i mean th- this is an accelerant for bad guys too but you know you're right another uh, enough, another disaster on top of 100 miles of disaster well maybe that would be okay any other thoughts uh, from your perspective sean though, from the, the life of the CISO
2: oh it, it's a um i think ultimately it's a question of <laughs> Curation management, like you say, that there's enough tools and there's enough tools producing data that we can consume. I think ultimately, it's what I'll call the uh, data information knowledge lifecycle that I think we need to improve. Is taking that data and turning it into something um, representatively that we can utilize in order to improve, assess, manage, and control. Um, but then that will representatively function as a um, catalyst for for change. Um, But with the generative AI pieces as well, and and we've, you know, we even talked about this, Tony, is, uh, you know, it's uh, maybe the same problems, but at a different velocity, um, just given the uh, incorporation of such technology and tools. So it's, uh, uh, like you're saying, I think I want to grow up to be a uh, cybersecurity algo guy. So uh, hopefully I'll get there soon. (laughs)
1: Never too late, John. Always always done.
2: Yeah. Let me just say, I I really try to tell people too. Like,
1: it's
0: gonna, it's already making cybersecurity worse. Let's say, but like in social engineering, whether it's a good message or a bad message, it's a message that arrives unexpectedly. You weren't expecting it in most cases, ninety-nine percent of the time, and it's asking you to do something unusual that you've never done before, either ever or for that requester. So if it has those two traits, regardless of whether it's human generated or AI generated, if it arrives unexpectedly, asking you something you've never done before, either ever or for that requester, then research it, you know, using an alternate safe method before performing the requested action. You know, I think if we can train our people to have those sort of logical thought processes that whether it's AI generated or not should help us.
1: Yeah, I think it's a wonderful one, too, uh, sort of advice, because then you can use the power of sort of better search tools and sort of you know, able to pull it together quickly to help them follow up on that intuition, right? You, you can't train people to deal with every problem, but you can train them to be suspicious of certain things and then to look further. And I think that's that's a great way to uh, to frame it. So, so Roger, um, any, so how long ago was that book written? Maybe five years ago? You're a yeah.
0: Uh, the first edition. So yeah. I got the third edition, but yeah, the first one was uh, about five years ago. Yeah. If
1: you ever, uh, when was the last time you updated it, or is it something you, you think uh, just you about a year it? ago, okay.
0: I think maybe it's been a year. All right. I'll have to go back and look and see what you're up to. Yeah. It's it's, it's sold 50,000 copies, which is a lot for a cybersecurity risk management book. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know.
1: Well, I think it's, it speaks well. As, as I said, you're, uh, you're on the on the pinnacle of uh, pragmatic, you know, v- uh, very easy to read, makes sense. Uh, the you know, one reason I'm th- thrilled to have Sean here co-hosting is this sort of um, the line from the cyber understanding, you know, through a CISO to a board to an executive team. You know, that's the. That's the place where business happens, right? And the, the way that cyber gets integrated into the way the business happens. And so I think that's a really Im- important part of it. Uh, tell us about your le- what You just came out with a new one, right? You're on 14 or 15 or something like that?
0: Yeah, number 14. Actually, I just happened to have it right <laughs> here. But...
1: <laughs> How convenient. Yes. Fighting oh, fishing. Fighting fishing, yeah. All right. Give, just, us, the, was, give was, us the one second summary or the one minute summary.
0: The, it's actually the t- everything you can do to fight fishing and social engineering you know, for, for the average organization. But let me, I want to stop real quick and say that, you know, you talk about practical application of data. I love what CIS did, which is, and I, I'm pretty sure I even put it in the third edition of the book because i I'm was so impressed with it. Y'all are the only organization I know, y'all you were know, among the first to say risk management, you know, when you're looking at different threats and controls. When y'all started it, I don't think there's anybody else. And now there's a lot of other frameworks that say, oh, you should do a a risk managed approach. Y'all are among the first to do risk management as part of the process. And number two, I love that y'all say, hey, when you implement these controls, talk about how effective it is for offsetting the risk. And that took my ideas one step further in practicality. So I didn't have that in the first edition. I I either added it second or third edition, but I was like,
1: Eureka! Eureka!
0: (laughs) Eureka, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, y'all got it. You know, I think when I finally met you one day in an airport and I I, I had known about you, known about the organization forever, I just, I think you and I became immediate friends. But I was like, my God, here's an organization that took the practical implications of what it means to use data to drive your threat modeling and risk management. It was phenomenal. So I was in my head. My hats are off to your organization as well. <laughs> well,
1: we, we are honored and touched by that, Roger. Thank you. But, you know, what happened, here, here's one of the trigger events for me. And I thought about this a lot when I was at NSA. I retired in 2012. But what really sort of renewed my looking at it, and that's when I've, you know, over the years hunted down like your work and Adam Shostaks and other folks like that, was once I was outside, you know, when you're inside the intelligence community, right? You're sort of in the center of this, you know, highly sensitive information gathering machine. And so you, there's a tendency to think, you know, you're seeing reality, right? Because it's so hard to get that information. You know, this is a national activity, nation versus nation. Then you get outside. So, and I, I step outside of that, retire, and I realize I have none of that. All I have is what's in the public. And I look around and what is there? You know, there's the writings of folks like you, there's the Verizon Data Reach report. And I thought, you know, I I could have found it disheartening, but I thought this is an exciting challenge. What can I do with the data that's there, right? That's just out to the public. It's that really made me reframe my thinking on that. And this idea of the other thing that I saw in government was um, what I eventually came to call the fog of more, even in government, right? Well-funded, lots of people, lots of insight from the intelligence community agencies could not sort out what's important. And that is just striking, right? To realize for all the money and energy and smart people and dedicated people, we, we don't make much progress. And so uh, so I, I think, you know, we were meant to to collide at that airport or wherever we first met, but it was like, okay, kindred spirit, we're, you know, we're, we should be talking about these kinds of things. So we appreciate that, but right back at you, I think we got a lot of inspiration from work of yours and folks like you, you know, that have thought about this. And again, the idea is, by the way, I spent. I grew up around mathematicians, right? I'm a reformed mathematician. You know, we can create models that have nothing to do with reality, but boy, they are great. You know, they're really interesting. And I said, the problem with every model I looked at, and I looked at a lot of them over the years, um, the doggone presence of an active, determined adversary screws up models all the time. <laughs> you know, they make it really hard. You, you can't abstract them away, or you can, but it doesn't help you then. But this idea of what do we have to work with? How can we frame it in a way not to solve world hunger, but to let us prioritize, right? And not to get paralyzed by the good things to do. So your example earlier, hey, fixing the doors is a good thing to do. That's a good thing to do. But they're attacking my windows. That's an important thing to do. I need to do something about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, even our even our military and the world's militaries every couple of years kind of shift. What's our focus going to be? They're using data to go, okay. Well, now we need it. We're going to be in more urban environments, going you know house to house, and it changes the makeup of the military. Well, we just kind of need to do the same thing in cybersecurity: is figure out what's a good makeup to be able to approach our future most likely yeah. threats.
1: Well, good for you, Roger. Well, we appreciate all you've done to uh, fight the good fight for the nation, for the industry, and uh, for folks like us. So uh, we uh, have enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I think there's there's always an occasion to bring you back, I'm sure. Uh, there's so much that you've uh, touched over your career. Thanks for having
0: me. And uh, thanks, to, thanks to everyone who is fighting the good fight. You know, we're out there. One day, this will be a far more mature industry that we do a lot better <laughs> job. But right now, it takes a lot of very dedicated, uh, committed people in the field. And I thank you all.
1: No, it's right back at you there. I, I said the, you know, there's a tagline I use in, in some of my, my riding Roger. I don't know if you ever saw it, but you know, we all know defense wins championships. But I grew up at NSA. Offense wins budgets, and that's where the attention goes and the money. And you know, with all respect to my friends who for offense, I mean, they're great <laughs> people doing great work. But at the end of the day, you know, we need great defenders who don't need a parade. Right? They don't get victory. There's always another thing to deal with, and so it takes a real sense of uh, important you know this is important work and we're going to do it and we're going to keep doing it because it, it won't end on us so so with that uh, roger thank you for joining us it's been a, a treat to have you here as a guest and uh, i'm sure a treat for the audience sean is always a pleasure to spend time talking to you and to uh, swap ideas and to learn from you at the same time and to the audience thank you again for your time and attention we never take it for granted and uh, please subscribe to our podcast in the usual ways and we will catch you at the next episode thank you
0: Thank you for listening to the show today. The thoughts and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of CIS. If you're interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website, cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.